I just signed up for online therapy. I had my first session um, April 14th. I'm excited because I'm sitting in this quarantine, and, and I'm not going to suffer alone. I'm not. I'm going to bring somebody else in to, to feel all my feelings with me, even if I got to pay them. And, and I bring that up to you because so many of us right now are suffering alone or just feeling like we're alone, even if we have someone who we live with or married to or dating, um, we, we can still feel like we're alone or like we're a burden. And I struggle with those same emotions. And so that's why I got an online therapist. I got someone who's going to help me work through and navigate and manage my emotions and feelings and thoughts. And I'm saying that because I know some of you are struggling with the same thing and you don't know who to trust. And I feel like you've been with me on this journey of, I don't know how many episodes we put up and you know what I've been through. And, you know, I've called that 1-800-SUICIDE number a couple times and I've been to therapy uh, and have had to pass therapists. And when I was nine, I told my mom when I turned 40, I was going to end my life. And here I am, 44 still moving forward and and checking goals off my list and 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 working every day to to feel connected and 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 feel like I belong and I want to share those coping skills and self-soothing techniques and strategies with you personalized to your tragedies and your traumas so that we can turn them into uh, a positive trajectory for your future go to thrivewithleo.com thrivewithleo.com, and let's get to tomorrow together. With that said, let's get into the episode. Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself. I have Jara Johnston on this episode, who I'm super excited to talk to uh, because she is a nonviolent communications life coach and a polyam, and she also coaches people on polyamory. If you don't know what that is, that's a relationship, an ethical, consensual relationship of more than two people. There is no limit on uh, polyamory. And I'm so excited to have you on because there's so many people who I realize, and myself included, engage in violent forms of communication that aren't just... That aren't just yelling at each other. Like I think when people think mm-hmm. of violence, they think of yelling, screaming, cursing. But there's so many yeah. subtle forms of violent communication. Correct? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out right off the bat. Um, when I first started teaching, I had a lot of kickback for using nonviolent because another form of the same thing is called compassionate communication. But I think it's really important to highlight what violence actually is in our day to day world when it's not physical. So I actually have a great definition that I use in my work. I don't know if you would be interested to hear that. I want to hear all the things. All the things. Wonderful. Um, So I have a a working definition that I've um, researched thoroughly, and it's based on the World Health Organization and Canada's um, mental health um, organization. And it's basically violence is Anything that pushes or pulls anyone off their own path of self-will. 
So I'm going to say it again, anything that pushes or pulls anyone off their own path of self-will. Wow, that's a, so that's, that's a very yeah. robust definition. I, I had never yes. thought about it like that. Can, can you go more into that? Yeah, absolutely. So like when we talk about communication, specifically nonviolent communication, when we look at it through this lens, we see that manipulation, coercion, um, guilt tripping, like these kinds of tactics that we use actually almost all the time, almost all of us use these tactics in our language. We don't recognize that they're actually pretty violent toward other people, meaning that they're a, a, a tactic to get someone else to act, behave, or think in a way we want them to, rather than allowing them the space to grow into communicating honestly or, or acting in the way they would like to. So it's, a, it's us putting what we would like someone else to do on them and typically done in a way that's very subtle and not easy to see, which makes it even worse. <laughs> yeah, because a lot of parents are violently uh, coercing their kids into a, a yes. college or education, but in their yeah. head, they're, it, it, you know, they're expressing it as encouraging or mm -hmm. modeling or, you know, I just, you know, I'm just want to give the kids some direction, you know? Absolutely. Yep. And yeah, go ahead. Go, no, go ahead. Uh, you know, you, this is, this is your realm. I, I, I you know, you can't <laughs> say enough. Like you, if you could talk for the whole hour, that's great because I want to hear all the things, Jarrah, like, because I, I, I know you. that I have so much work to do in terms of uh, not just uh, violent communication towards others, but towards myself, right? Because that, I mean, that's where probably most of it happens. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you pointed that out because I tell people in my classes when I teach NBC, nonviolent communication, that, um, you need to practice it as often as possible. It's a language. It's a literal, like it's Italian, it's Spanish, it's a language and you have to learn how to embody it and, and know all of its ins and outs. And that takes a really long time. So the best way to practice it on an ongoing basis is with yourself because you're always there and you're always talking to yourself. Like everybody always has this reel of self-communication. And when we recognize how I know for me, when I got out of the hospital, um, I was hospitalized several years ago, um, for mental health issues. And when I got out, I started learning about self-talk and automatic negative thoughts. When I started to recognize when I was being cruel to myself, I stopped it and was able to change that script and start talking to myself nonviolently. My mental illnesses, like those diagnoses got sp so much better. I just exponentially. So absolutely, we are probably most vile and cruel to ourselves uh, over anyone else. That's true. Can you take us through your story about what led you going into the hospital and then how you came onto this journey of, of coaching others? Absolutely. Um, this story is actually a lifelong one. I was born into, I was born to parents who were um, 17 and 18 years old when I was born. Uh, so they were, they were babies and they were both um, alcoholics and drug users. So I spent the first nine years of my life and really, in situations that most people don't know exist because they're they're um, they're very ugly and they're very dark and um, I was severely abused and neglected through those years 
And then in my teenage years, I spent with my father, but he was still an alcoholic. And so that created a lot of just ugly things in my life. I didn't really have a healthy way of being. And so um, it was in my teen years, they say, the the therapist I've seen has said that it was in my teen years that um, my borderline personality disorder and post-traumatic stress um, disorder were manifest due to all of that trauma. And so I spent a lot of my years between the years, you know, between teens when I had finally moved out until having my daughter at about 23, so that like five years, um, just kind of floundering around and not you know, really caught up in all these negative, um, maladaptive coping mechanisms. Um, and you know, I I think my daughter was my biggest teacher because I was, I had somebody to be accountable to. So a a lot has happened through that journey of being a mom. Um, I got pregnant with my then ex, my ex-wife and she left when I was pregnant. And it's just been, there's been a lot of things that have happened. Um, and, I eventually ended up marrying the sperm donor for my daughter and uh, trying to create a family. And it didn't work well. You can imagine that marrying somebody for that reason is not the greatest idea in the world. So um, I got more and more depressed and eventually we split up. And it was through that split up that that depression and anxiety just came crashing down on top of me. And uh, I really thought my daughter didn't need me anymore. And so I went into an outpatient program and they put me on medication. They put me on three different medications. And um, one of those medications, Zoloft, is basically decreases your filter of being able to filter your own thoughts. So for some, especially the young, it can create more of a risk of suicide. And it was maybe a week or two after I got out of the outpatient program that I tried to kill myself. And it was actually, it was looking back, it's a little hilarious because they had every single cop looking for me, but I was just parked around the corner from my house. <laughs> so they were looking everywhere and I'm just like, I'm right here. I don't <laughs> <laughs> I'm literally parked like two minutes from where you're, all your sirens are going off. Um, so yeah. And then the, the police officer was great. He took me into the hospital, sat with me, played jazz in the car. I mean, he was really great. Um, the hospital stay sucked. It, 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 nobody, nobody wants to go in there. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's not the, it's not the most comforting place, but about halfway through my stay in the hospital, my best friend called me and she was really upset. And I realized how much I had to live for. And since then I, re- I recognize that the scariest thing in the world, the scariest thing any human can face is the lack of will to live because then there's nothing to catch you. We all have those instinctive, I'm gonna save my life. If I fall off the cliff, I'm gonna reach up and grab the edge. I lost that. And so my journey of building my emotional intelligence, healing my mental health issues, all of that journey has really been stemmed from this idea of, I can never go back there again because it is the most dangerous thing. Given everything I've ever been through, it's the most dangerous thing that has ever happened to me. Um, and so I worked really hard and about four and a half years ago, I moved into an intentional community, which is kind of like what you tend to think of as a commune, but run much better than that. (laughs) We were an education center we did a lot of educating and we lived together. There's about 40 of us on an 80 piece of 80 acre piece of property. And that honestly was probably the biggest thing that helped me get healthy. I consider myself in remission from all of my diagnoses. I function 
at a very high level and I'm pretty happy with my life. And I think a lot of that is due to the security, safety, and love I experienced in that closed community. So yeah, that brings me to the present day. Wow. What a great story. Um, I want to, I want to go back a little bit and and unpack a few Mm -hmm. things. One, what, what, how old was your daughter when you felt like she didn't need you anymore? She was a year and a half. Yeah. Yeah. She was a year and a half. And what, what about that situation? Did you, I mean, was she like walking and talking and like driving a car? Like what made you feel like, (laughs) (laughs) was she feeding herself? Like, was she, (laughs) did she have a website? Like, what was she doing? And you're like, (laughs) my baby don't need me no more. Um, well, what had happened is my ex-husband and I had split up and, my, because of my deteriorating mental health, um, she stayed with him. Uh, and he was a recovering addict and had been clean for a while. So it, it was a fairly safe situation as, as far as we could tell from the outside. But um, I went to visit her after being away from her for two weeks, which is the longest I'd ever been away from her at that point. And when I got back, it seemed from my perspective at the time that he just had it under control. And after taking care of both of them for as long as she has been alive, um, it, I just felt like I lost my sense of, of meaning in the world. I, I was there to be a mom and she was obviously just fine with her dad. So in my brain at that time, um, she didn't need me and, and my reason for living was gone. I yeah. asked that because so many parents, um, when you look at the age of the kids, when parents usually attempt or commit or, uh, in their life, the kids are usually mm-hmm. like at that autonomous stage of like eight or nine. And there yeah. is that feeling like the kids don't need me anymore. You see the kid running around, doing things on their own, wanting to do things on their own. And it does yeah. look like everything's under control. Like this kid will be fine. And mm-hmm. but we don't realize the emotional impact and, and how much a kid does need their parents physically, just even you know, Absolutely. the research on babies who are uh, held physically versus babies who aren't held uh, show that the babies who aren't held um, have a tough time self-soothing themselves and versus the babies who do. And the babies who are held have an have a easier time adapting to the world. And so that physical contact, that release of oxytocin that comes from flesh on flesh uh, is so major. Absolutely. And actually, um, for you, if, if you haven't read it and also for your listeners, if you're interested in more of the physiological consequences of not getting enough touch and not having a parent, like a a loving caregiver present, the deepest well, um, it's by, I think her name is Tracy Nadine, but it's called the deepest well. It's a book about, it's from a doctor, um, an African-American doctor who developed the ACE test or helped develop the ACE test, which tests for um, trauma in childhood, which has significant, I'm talking significant impacts on health for the rest of the life, often short, shortening the life for up to a decade. So yeah, that's a, it's a really good resource to learn more about why a, you know, a parent or loving caregiver's presence in those early years is really important. Yes, yeah, by Nadine Burke-Harris. I have a link Exactly. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, With your 
you know, the diagnosis of, of borderline personality and, and PTSD, can you mm-hmm. kind of walk us through what that looked like? Because I think there are so many people who may be struggling with it. I've, I've talked to so many people who didn't know that they were struggling with it because they didn't know what to look for. Uh, what totally. were some of those signs of borderline personality and, and, and also the PTSD? Um, so yeah, they, they manifest in very different ways. Um, borderline personality disorder is a personality disorder. So it, it strongly impacts your mood and your perceptions of yourself and other people, as well as the biggest thing I think for me was emotions. I'm just, I'm a perceptive person. I'm an empathetic person to begin with. So emotions are, are a big part of my existence, but borderline personality disorder makes them feel like a crushing tidal wave. And it doesn't matter what the emotion is. I actually heard the woman who developed um, dialectical behavioral therapy, which is an offshoot of, of cognitive behavioral therapy, she talks about when she was developing it that she worked with mostly borderline people. And she said that one of her clients said that it's like having burns all over your body. It doesn't matter how lovingly somebody touches you, every touch hurts. And that's what it feels like on the emotional body, having borderline. It's, It doesn't even matter how loving it is. It's just everything hurts. Everything is huge and feels overwhelming literally all the time. Um, and your ability to make decisions, is, it's, it's very black and white. So people in your life are either fantastic, amazing people, or they're the scum of the earth. And there's no in between. So, And that perception that... Um, back and forth from that real high to real low is is really significant for people with borderline. And it, and it impacts everything. It's not just other people, but all the ideas are either this or that. And the gradation in between feels intolerable because it's really confusing. Um, so it makes relationships extremely hard to maintain, as you can imagine, because if you're somebody who loves a borderline, they're telling you, oh my gosh, you're the best thing ever. Oh, you're a demon, get away from me. And that back and forth, that hot and cold is extremely taxing for the people who um, love us <laughs> or are trying to love us. Uh, so that's that was my experience. And borderline also, one of the things that led to the actual diagnosis was suicide. Um, I was self-harming for a lot of my teen years and early 20s. And um threatened to commit suicide. I don't think until I actually tried, I didn't think I really understood what actually trying to kill yourself and what that feels like felt like, but I was desperate enough to want help and feel like I needed to cry out for help. So that also will point out somebody with borderline is that sort of constant, either self-harm or suicidal ideation. Uh, can we unpack the the ideation yeah. just a little bit? You know, uh, yeah. I'm reading a book right now called why people die by suicide. And in mm-hmm. that book, he talks about how it's overarchingly it's a, a feeling of hopelessness. Um, right. But then when you when you when you break it down, it's feeling hopelessness about uh, uh, failing to belong and also feeling like a burden. Did you feel mm-hmm. either one of those? Like because you, you talked about that with your baby, so that, there's the belongingness part. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Was there a feeling of, of burden also, or was it uh, strongly more of the belonging? Um, yeah, I I haven't felt much like a burden on 
almost anybody until I started actually actively treating my mental health issues because I, I was forced to take care of myself and my brothers from, I mean, I remember cooking most of my meals from the age of four. So I'm extremely independent to, to a fault, (laughs) extremely independent. So I, I don't often feel like a burden on other people, but it definitely was that I don't belong here. That was, that has been a significant thread through my life that I've had to very consciously and intentionally, um, reprogram, uh, when you're not cared for, when you're neglected and abused to the extent that I was, or just period, um, these feelings of if, if the person who was supposed to love me, who gave birth to me, who has my DNA can't and, and treats me this way, then what am I actually worth? Do I actually belong? So that was a lot of it. Fascinating. Uh, thank you uh, for sharing that that part of it. Um, and, mm-hmm. and to bring it more to present day, like how old are you now? I'm 33. At, so 33. And so your daughter's how old? She just turned nine about wow. a month ago. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I, wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, to, to bring us into like how you're helping people and coaching people, through nonviolent mm-hmm. communication, what are some of the things that that typically come up in terms of how people talk to themselves, and how do you help them unpack that? Um, so, people are just vile to themselves typically, and and they, I don't think people recognize that until we really until they're asked to sit down and listen to really listen because it's we're so used to it that it it becomes part of existence like breathing and you just don't notice it. Um, I have been working in um, with groups such as Heart of Now, which is local here in the Pacific Northwest. It's a group processing modality, and I've learned a lot through being an assistant and facilitating. Um, through that organization in that bringing people into their bodies, having them listen to the judge, we call it the judge in the head that's constantly, you're too fat, you're not good enough. Um, Why did you screw that up so badly? Why can't you do this? It's just, it's a constant barrage of negative things. And a lot of it's programming from when we were children. Um, You know, a lot of that older, more traditional parenting style is very judgment-based and very, very violent in its language. And so we get programmed that way. And we think that we're doing something good to ourselves by, um, by being crappy, by judging ourselves. And so by bringing that out and having people feel what it feels like to have that being said to you, stop talking, stop distracting yourself, stop, but just sit, close your eyes, feel in your body. Now, when I say this thing that you've told me your judge says, what does it feel like? And have them actually feel it, really feel it. And it's crushing for a lot of people. It's just like the tears and the and the emotion that breaks through when they're actually able to hear it. That's a huge motivator to change because they realize, oh gosh, if I'm only hearing these two things in this moment and it's and it's and it hurts this badly, then how much damage am I doing to myself? over the days, over the years of speaking to myself this way. And so it's a huge feeling that pain, not numbing it out, not distracting ourselves from it, is a huge motivation to change our behaviors and the way that we think. Um, 
And we do that a lot with thought stopping, you know, really recognizing the thought, stopping ourselves and changing the script. You know, what, what could I say to myself instead? Or, you know, telling the judge, this is very helpful for people, you know, looking at our judge and saying, thank you. Thank you for keeping, for keeping me safe from your perspective. Thank you for loving me enough to try to motivate me. I don't need you anymore. So it's like giving the gratitude to the piece that wasn't, isn't helpful and then allowing it to burn through so that it can just pass away is really, really helpful. So it's a, it's a very somatic experience, you know, that, that, that connection between the mind and where all of this talk is happening and the body and where it's being felt that helps. You, you know, uh, I, I, cause I used to weigh 275 pounds and um, mm-hmm. I'm around 220. I play always between 220 and 210 and and I still, every now and again, have have the the, the idea of like I'm fat. Um, you know, I got to get in shape. Uh, you know, and I've I recognize that, as you said, like you have to thank that thought because what it's really trying to do is protect me from diabetes, protect me from cancer, yeah. protect me from uh, a, a poor, a poor night of sleep, you know? Um, but it's the way in which it said that actually may propel me or spiral me down into eating more of the foods that, that aren't good for me and into shaming and, and, and embarrassment. Um, and so I, I love the idea of, of, of thanking it because on some level, when you're, when your parents are saying, you know, or somebody is calling you stupid there in a way it's helpful because you go, Oh yeah, hey, there are certain things I don't know. And I, I should study up more or I should ask more questions or I should look more into that. Or maybe you could teach me, uh, you mm-hmm. know, the ways or, or whatever, there's a way to, to reframe it. But there's also a way to communicate that the, 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 the way the message is being delivered doesn't serve uh, the, the, the goal is trying to accomplish and, and to figure out how to reframe that. Absolutely. And I think that's a, it's a huge motivator for what I do, um, whether it's in social media and educating people there or my courses or coaching or teaching or whatever it is, is to help all of us understand where these things are coming from. Because of the person who says, oh, you're stupid, we know that they're, unless they're being a bully, but if they're a parent or a, a, you know somebody who's attempting to help us, it's coming from a good place, but their education and intentionality behind what they're saying is minimal. And so we, it's, it's easy to get reactive with people of like, you know, screw you or get reactive with ourselves when we're being mean and, and like judgy and, and saying those things that are not intentional. But really underneath it is just an ignorance. It's just uh, not knowing enough about what's actually happening under the surface to make intentional decisions about what we say. So that's a huge motivator for me to educate uh, on a mass scale so that we all have a better idea of what's happening inside of us and what's motivating us to say things. You know, because before we can change how we talk, we need or or any of our behaviors, we need to kind of understand what the dynamics are. Otherwise, we're not doing it from an authentic place. We're doing it from a reactive place. 
you know, what I like about what you said, I mean, I, I love all the things, but specifically what I'm latching on to is to, to ask where is that coming from? Because a, a lot of times we do react when someone says something that could be triggering uh, for mm-hmm. us, uh, you know, like a, a judgment call on us or we're saying something to ourselves. And to, to really ask the other person, hey, when you say that, where is that coming from? Like, where is that? Ju- like, is it coming from love? Is it coming from fear? Is it coming like, like, you know, like when you're when your mom says, you know, when you're about to leave out the house, like put a hat on or, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, I don't want you hanging around with those kids anymore. Like that's coming from a place of fear and love. Like they're they're afraid of what could happen if you go outside without a hat on. Maybe you'll catch cold or the flu or or, or whatever. Uh, yeah. But they also is also because they love you and, and they, right. they want you to, to thrive. But maybe the tone in which they're saying it or, or, or you know, the, the, the way it, the words that they're using, it feels hurtful. And when you yeah. when you when you when you are, can pause and take time to unravel that, then uh, you you find that you two can connect better. And over time that conversation, that dialogue does improve. Absolutely. And the number one thing, one of the number one things that I say to clients and students when I talk about nonviolent communication specifically is if you are feeling activated, if you have that feeling of tension in your chest, in your stomach, in your throat, you're feeling activated, do not have the conversation. Unless you're in the middle of the street and there's a truck hurtling toward you that you're going to die don't have the conversation. There's nothing that's important enough that it can't wait because your brain cannot make the decisions that you need to make, cannot speak from the place that you want to speak. When you are activated, the chemicals are rushing through your brain and you literally can't. So it's like when you feel activated, that's the place to stop and say, hey, I'd love to have this conversation later. Let's set up a time to have this conversation, but don't engage from activation because at the very best, at the very best outcome of communication when you're activated is going to be the lowest outcome if you're not activated. So why, why even go there at that point? Yeah, because when you're activated, we're, we're, we're just two limbic systems going at it, right? Yep. Yeah, like your, your, your prefrontal, totally. cortex, prefrontal cortex is not involved which is your thinking part of your brain and your limbic is all your fight, flight and freeze response. And uh, when you had two, two is like two alligators trying to solve a, a problem. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not good. It's not going to be a good outcome. No. It's just going to be a bunch of rolling around in the mud or whatever. Uh, exactly. And, yes. <laughs> and there's, there's so much research that shows that different emotions have different um, lifespans, so to speak, where, like mm-hmm. sadness can last, I think, a couple of days and, and joy lasts a couple hours, like whatever it is. So um, mm-hmm. that whole taking, you know, when people say uh, don't go to bed uh, upset at each other, mm-hmm. uh, that doesn't mean mm-hmm. you got to resolve it before bed. It means figure <laughs> out how to lower your cortisol levels before you get in bed. But it doesn't mean that you two have to sit across from each other like Tyson and Hagler and figure it, it out. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and the way we love each other is a, is a massive point of learning, I think, for us as a society, too, is learning that boundaries are love, that putting off communication until you're both centered is love, that 
sometimes, you know, that, that not constricting can be love. So there's, there's, I think there's an education that needs to happen for all of us, myself included, um, on what love is and how we want to engage with it on an ongoing basis. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Because I, I, I think that so many people get their idea of love and communication from like media and the movies, especially like if you like in your situation <laughs> where like your parents really weren't around. And so those are the only things uh, available, you know, or like that one kid in your class who's like three years too old, uh, yeah. you know, talking about something he saw on the Internet. Um, mm-hmm. can, so can you talk about what that, what that looks like and, and go into the polyamory also, because I think that's a, a fascinating thing because, you know, a, a lot of, so, you know, I think what was the divorce rate about 50% and it's a little over 50%. It's a, yeah. yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, a lot of those divorces are coming from, uh, happen in the first two years of marriage and, uh, mm-hmm. are mostly people in their, in their twenties. Um, where, where that, once again, that limbic system is, is all, uh, fired up. You just getting that prefrontal cortex involved. Um, yeah. but can you talk to us about polyamory and, and, and some of the views on that and how that works? Yeah, absolutely. Well, polyamory, as you talked about it, is an, just a form of ethical non-monogamy. Um, and the stress is on ethical. When people hear about polyamory, oftentimes the, the, gut reaction is, oh, that's cheating. That's a, that's a reason to cheat. And it's absolutely not. Um, it actually there's in my perception, there's more ways to cheat in a polyamorous relationship than there is in a monogamous relationship because monogamous people tend to see, um, a sexual string as the only kind of cheating. Whereas polyamory is real specific about what the agreements are between people. And if, and even an emotional, affair or an emotional stepping out against the agreements that you have with somebody, it could be a form of cheating. So it's funny because people have this perception that it's like this heathenistic kind of, um, uh, just very devious kind of life. And I've actually experienced it as exactly the opposite of that. Um, it's, it's a way for people to be able to love each other deeply while offering complete freedom what I found in just my traveling through life is that a lot of what we call love these days is actually ownership. So we see that in parenthood, you know, we, we attach like me when I lost my, my will to live, it was because I attached my worth to my child and who I was to the world through my child. And I since stopped doing that because it harmed me in the end. And that's the same, the same thing for a lot of parents is they see, they get angry with their child when their child's not behaving well, because they see it as an extension of themselves, that somehow they own the child. And that's not true. We're all individuals and should have complete freedom to be ourselves as it doesn't harm another person. Um, and that's really what polyamory is focused on is that freedom to be exactly who you want to be, to love exactly the way you want to love and offer that with a lot of freedom. However, because there is a lot of freedom, there's not a lot of structure, people, all of this stuff, the unhealed stuff, the the like emotional traumas and triggers and stuff, they are just right on the surface, ready to be poked. Uh, because there's so much freedom, because there's that lack of 
structure that monogamy has to it, this like pervasive societal understanding of how to be in a relationship in monogamy. And in polyamory, you don't have that. It's sort of like the difference between like a, being religious and being spiritual. Um, religion has a lot of structure to it and a lot of dogma, where spiritual is really open. And poly, polyamory is that way. You kind of define it for yourself. That's why it's hard to define, is it technically means many loves. So being able to love more than one other person um, in a meaningful, romantic, deep, connective way. Um, but it's literally, you go up to 50 people who are polyamorous, you're going to get a different answer from each person. Um, but the basic concept is that that opening, that um, freedom to self-express and to love in the way that feels right for you. So when people ask me what my definition of poly is, polyam, excuse me, is I, I imagine that there's, you know, those sound boards that they use for like a play where it has all those toggles, you know, like you're you're pushing the sound in different directions and stuff like at a sound studio. That's what I imagine exists between me and literally every single other human on the planet. So anybody I connect with, we have this toggle board. And each of the toggles is every type of relationship, every type of connecting that people can do. And sexual, sensual, friendship, familial, sister, brother, all of that is a different toggle. And you and I get to decide where each of those toggles are. That's up for us to decide. And so that's you know, that's my definition of polyamory. So polyamory for me is so much bigger than just like a romantic relationship style. It's really the way that I connect with everybody in the world. Well, you know, what's beautiful about that is because it opens up the door to um, multiple uh, relationships. But it also, I think what it helps does is it reduces expectations of what a relationship is. Uh, because yes. a lot of times you go in thinking, all right, this is this is my role, that's that person's role, and uh, this is how we're going to operate. But what happens if the other person gets sick? You know, what if the other person, mm -hmm. uh, 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 you know, becomes wheelchair bound? That completely changes the dynamic and, and the role of the relationship. And, you know, where maybe you become more of a caretaker um, than, than a lover, you know, there was passion in the mm -hmm. beginning and, and now you're, um, you're, you're kind of limited to uh, a certain space. So it, your relationships can evolve and change. And I think it's having the courage to, to ask yourself, what kind of relationship do you want and what do you need and what feeds your soul and, and, and what's the outcome? Like me and my girl, like we, we get, we're getting along. So we just, uh, we just started dating in October. And mm -hmm. one of the things I realized is like when I was like, why aren't these relationships working out? And I go, I have to tie it to a bigger purpose instead of just like looking for the right girl. It's like, what do I want yeah. my life to be? And then find yes. someone who fits into that. Now, of course, things could change and uh, it changes the trajectory of, of, of the direction we're going. But, you know, mm -hmm. I, I was like, I want someone who I can I can be with and be mobile with and travel the world with. And and so when we met and we started talking, I was like, perfect. This is, you know, like you you uh, align with my value system. And so when, absolutely. When you have that foundation, it allows you to uh, not when people say don't sweat the small stuff, what they're saying. But you, you it's hard to not sweat the small stuff if 
you don't know what the bigger picture is. And so, right? right? Yeah. Can you go into that? that Because you sound excited. I like that. Yeah, sorry. I I just like, when you said about what are your values, that's exactly what it is. It's not actually, when I tell people, people ask me all the time, where do I start with Polly? I'm interested. I said, you start with you because that's the relationship that has to be clear before you can open up to having multiple relationships, your relationship with yourself, you understanding what your needs are and identifying them, understanding how you want those needs to get met. Those are so important because they inform what kind of relationships you have. That is the beauty of a polyamorous lifestyle is that I, I have multiple people that I date. I only have like one committed partner at this time, but I have multiple people that I date. And I do that because I don't get all my needs met with one person. It's very, very, very rare for that to happen. And so I can identify which needs get met by which person and which don't, and then not become reactive when that person, you know, my, my, let's say my main partner doesn't meet those needs. It's like, okay, that's fine. Let me find a different connection that will meet those needs. And there's no, um, there's no worry. There's a security in that. And it's because my part, my male partner and I, we, our relationship with ourself is primary period. My relationship with myself, his relationship with himself, though that is our primary relationships. Everything outside of that is secondary and will always come secondary. And it's because of that value-based lifestyle. And it's it's frustrating with for people because they go into polyamory thinking they're gonna solve their problems with polyamory. They're gonna solve their relationship problems. So bring in another person, or I'm not satisfied sexually, so I'm gonna go and and it's like, okay, fine, that's maybe part of it, but that's not where you should start. Because polyamory will not solve your problems. It will create more if you don't have your own house figured out, like inside yourself. So it's really about relationship with self first. I love that. Um, I, I do want to go back into conflict resolution. Are there mm-hmm. any uh, s- patterns, styles, um, or blueprints for uh, uh, for resolving conflict? Yeah, I mean, nonviolent communication is a great way to solve conflict. Um, I think for people, one thing that I would tell I tell folks on a, on a pretty regular basis is. We've gotten into this culture where we're super, super America. The U.S. is super independent. Like we are, are I'm here, you're there. It's very separate and disconnected. Um, and so when we get in a conflict with another person, we oftentimes feel like we have to stay isolated in that conflict. And that's ugly because it, that a conflict, that's one of the worst things that can happen is when it gets stuck between two people or two entities because there's a loop. And it just keeps looping and it can just go forever. Um, oftentimes getting a mediator or a friend, I know that feels vulnerable for a lot of people, but getting somebody, a trusted, uninvolved party to even just sit with you, not necessarily to even mediate, but just to sit, to offer other energy than the two people is really helpful. But nonviolent communication can be a super amazing way to work through conflict and it's because it's very formulaic. Um, there's a there's an outline, so it goes through an observation, how you're feeling, what your need is, and then a request that you may have for meeting that need from the other person. And you can go back and forth. 
um, between the two people with this modality, which is most helpful when you have a third person there to kind of help in case things get stuck, in case you have a motor mouth, uh, you know, in case the tension gets a little too high, um, to kind of just help with the vibes of the of the conversation. But yeah, with conflict, um, nonviolent communication, having a mediator there, and then just remembering that empathy is going to be is your number one connective piece that you can employ when resolving a conflict. And you don't have to be totally in love with the person to engage in empathy. We're all humans. We all have very, very similar experiences, unlike we like to, we don't like to focus on that, but we do. We have very familiar familiar experiences. We all have the same needs. We all have the same feelings on different levels. And so it's not that difficult to empathize. And empathy has to be at the center of conflict resolution. In my, From my perspective, it has to be at the center for it to be truly holistic and effective long-term. What does empathy sound like? Because for people who do typically engage in forms of violent communication, uh, being able to empathize, like what does that mean? And then can you give us uh, an example of one person saying something, another person then empathizing with that person? Yeah, so empathy, empathy and sympathy oftentimes get mixed up. Um, sympathy is when you see someone suffering and you say, "Oh, I feel bad for you. Um, I have I have feelings of of pain that you're in pain." Um, empathy goes a step further and it says, "I feel pain watching you in pain because I can imagine being you." So it's really that, like, I'm able to put myself in your shoes to an extent that I feel affected like you might be feeling affected. And typically, we have to have pretty, we have to be able to draw on a similar experience. So, for instance, I'm trying to think of an example that's actually happened in my life. Um, So... Well, like, like if somebody says to me, I, I hear this a lot from people who I educate a lot about poly all over social media because it's just not um, well known. And, you know, somebody may say, you know, I could never do that. I would get too jealous. That's a very, very, very frequent response. And I, you know, I, I want to question that reality for them. So I often do ask a question for deeper learning, but I can also empathize with them because I've been jealous. I felt jealousy before and I can, I can empathize with how scary it must be to make an intentional decision where you're facing something that feels really hard. It's much easier to not, to just avoid it or to numb it out or, or to not deal with it. So even though I want to question where they're coming from on that. I, w- I want to hear more. I'm curious about that and to s- see if they if they know where that's coming from. So I may ask questions, but I am empathizing with the fact that it's okay to be scared. It's okay to not feel ready to open yourself up in that way. And I can feel that deep in myself and it helps me to connect because really we are all the same. We're all one human organism, um, not as separate as we think we are. Yeah, because that you know the ability to to empathize. One of the uh, there's a book called Never Split the Difference by Chris mm-hmm. Voss, 
And he says that one of the the tricks to, or uh, I don't want to use the word trick, but one of the ways to to show that you actually empathize uh, with someone is to label their emotions. And Mm -hmm. what was interesting, he said, you don't have to get it correct. Like you don't have to be like, hey, it sounds, it seems like you're scared or it sounds, it sounds like you're sad. And, and mm-hmm. either you'll hit the nail on the head and be like, wow, I am sad. I didn't realize that. Thanks for, for pointing that out. Or they'll say, no, I'm not sad. I'm actually uh, frustrated I, or I actually Absolutely. feel frustrated. And then good. So even though you, you weren't correct, at least you, you're, you are getting warmer and you're, and you're helping them to uh, peel back the layers of how they feel emotionally. Uh, and so... Yeah. And, and the other part with that, too, is, you know, when we do have emotions, it's we don't just have one emotion. It's called having emotions. Nobody has mm-hmm. any emotion. We have layers. So what you want to help them do is once you've unpacked the first one is then follow up with the question of what else are you feeling? And at, at the root of most emotions, especially anger, you're going to find fear. Uh, at the bottom of that or some type of grief or sadness. Yeah. And, and so, Absolutely. like you said, like, uh, especially if you're talking to someone who uh, struggling with like bipolar personality disorder, where everything mm-hmm. is all or nothing black and white to help them be able to explore the, the grays and the subtle nuances and the spaces in between uh, could help you connect more versus uh, this idea that uh, they so they can't be helped because of their diagnosis or, or. Absolutely. Yeah, I would, I would completely agree with that. I would give a, a word of warning for anybody who wants to do that. I think it's wonderful. And I think that it can be really effective, even with just friends, you don't have to have a huge background to be able to help people through this. One thing I would say is that we are trained to speak from our point of view. And we're, we're oftentimes really acclimated to putting our point of view on someone else. And so if anybody wants to do this with somebody who they care about, I would strongly recommend being very careful about the language that you use. And for instance, saying, you know, it's my perception that I have the idea that you're, you're feeling sad. It, it, under, make sure to make it very clear that it's, it's me. I, I feel that I sense this, not you're feeling angry. I can see you're feeling sad. Oftentimes, that's a, a kind of a violent way to communicate because we're putting our perception on the other person as if it's an absolute reality. And it's very, very, very helpful to helping someone actually open up and become vulnerable if you respect their process and the separation between the two of you. So asking questions, being very clear, oh, this is my perception. I had the idea that I'm curious if this is true for you. Sort of that that sense of curiosity rather than the assertion of our perception on someone else when we're trying to help them through that can be really helpful. I'm glad you you added that piece because you're right. Anytime when we're talking about conflict resolution and nonviolent communication, one of the triggers is uh, you. When we say, well, mm-hmm. you, yes. anything <laughs> is such a huge trigger. Um, and so we yeah. want to stay away uh, of all the words that people talk about the F word and all these, and this goes back to in the beginning when we were like, 
you know, it's not those um, the 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 obvious words that really incite an argument. It's those subtle words like you uh-huh. and because it's, yes. it's, you're blaming that person. And and, um, uh, and then to go back into what I was saying, uh, the reason why uh, there it, it also ties into the reason why I was saying it sounds like and it seems because then you're mm-hmm. you're 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 not you're taking I out you know part of I'm just going off the book he was saying how uh, you want to take I out of it also so that it makes it when you use it 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 makes mm-hmm. the assertion neutral uh, depersonalize right it. you yeah. depersonalize the whole thing you know I'm not taking I'm not projecting and and I'm not blaming. I'm just I'm mm-hmm. I'm exploring this neutral ground with uh with it and then to say it sounds like or it seems or it feels like uh that that creates it a more of a uh a, a curious uh tone to it versus saying you are or um uh you know using uh the I statement so that it it doesn't feel like you're projecting but so start with it. It's a very neutral. It sounds like it feels like it. It seems mm. like it creates this. Uh, yeah. And like I said, it's not about being right. It's just right. more about like helping them explore and helping you to clarify uh, the confusion around it. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the the whole you thing. Like, God, that's just so. And because I would get triggered by that and have no idea. Uh-huh. That, exactly. that was yeah. it. And that's the thing is, <laughs> yeah. you know, we become adults and we learn like the state capitals and how to carry the two and all these things. But nobody tells you, you know, how to manage emotions and and what triggers to look out for. I mean, who had any idea that you was like the most triggering of all words, I think, um, uh, as far as as far as I can tell, like as soon as I hear you, I'm like, oh, uh, here we yeah. go. Here we go. It totally, it totally is. And actually, you might probably, you might have um, some experience with this too. Is where I see this coming up the most, at least in my work, is around privilege. Like the moment you start talking about privilege and you use the word "you," people shut down completely. It's and it doesn't matter whether it's white privilege, male privilege, uh, uh, financial. Pri- it doesn't matter if you're talking about privilege. The moment you say you have privilege everybody will shut down. But if I say, look at what ways I have privilege. Look at what, what ways I'm under privilege or I have privilege. Look at how I carry this. This is, this is how I perceive it. Then it changes. And it's just so interesting how just a simple change in the word can just remove the trigger that most people put up as a block you know, to true communication and, edu- and education. Yeah. You know, when me and my girl watch, uh, we are watching Ozark right now. And mm-hmm. one of the things we'll do is like when two people are arguing, we'll pause it and unpack, uh, <laughs> what they're, what they're communicating, uh, yeah. emotionally, even though they're saying, you know, you cheated, you, you betrayed me. Uh, you know, they're yelling at each other. We, we go through and we and we say, all right, so what's this person feeling? And then they'll say something yeah. else. And then you, you'll see how the emotions change through the argument. They'll start off mm-hmm. with anger and then it'll go into frustration and then hurt and then sadness. And re- like and it's just yeah. fascinating. It's a fascinating exercise and a great way to 
to to extend whatever you know your favorite TV show is. <laughs> oh, absolutely! Yeah. And such an such an intentional way to engage in relationship too. I mean, wow! That's I I may mention that at some point and point back to you because that is a really cool tactic I've never heard before. Yeah, it's I, I just started. We just started doing it, and uh, I mean, mm. you know, we don't do it all the time, but occasionally, like there's when there's like a really heated. And then we go, all right, what was that about? And what are, yeah. they, what are they really feeling here versus? Yes. Um, and you go, whoa, oh, snap. You know, because I'm still yeah. learning myself. So it's it's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, that is, that's rad. Yeah, yeah. And you're doing yeah. it together. Like, at the, you know, it's, I, the journey should be like, it, it lets you both know that like you're both working on this. And that's a good feeling Absolutely. too, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. Is there, is there anything, uh, Jara, that we haven't covered or discussed in terms of nonviolent communication, any, any patterns, any, any, uh, blueprints, any, uh, strategies that, that you feel like the listeners should know? Um, the thing where, well, yeah, actually there is, and I talk about this a lot in my work. I actually have a free nonviolent communication course out that you can get to from my website. Um, it's just, ba- it's a very, very basic course. So if anybody has any experience with it, then, then, uh, then it won't be that effective. But in every class that I teach on nonviolent communication, what I do is I go through the steps. So we, when you deliver a nonviolent communication to someone, like I said, there's a format and we call it the Offner model, Offner, because it's observation, feeling, need and request. So my joke is, and it's, it's a dad joke, so I'm sorry ahead of time. How often do we practice NBC? Offner. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> I know, I know it's bad. It's bad, but it makes people remember oftener. And it's, so it's the observation, feeling, need and request. And one of the most um, powerful things to do is go through each of those steps and say, okay, where does the violence creep in? And it's, I, after doing this for a long time, I finally boiled it down to be, being pretty simple. So I'll just go over that real quick. And I think that that's one of the most powerful things you can learn. So when you were looking at an observation statement, when we're saying, I see this, I experience this, um, what we're saying is something that lived in a shared reality. So if you were a fly on the wall, that's the observation, is whatever the fly would see. What we often do when we give an, observ- an observatory statement is we use our filter. So when I saw you get angry, that's not an observation. That's through your filter. When I saw your face get red, you put your hands on your hips and lean forward, those are observations. That's something that anybody in the situation would be able to see or experience independent of anybody's perception. So that's where the violence leaks in an observation. The violence will leak in in, in when we're talking about our feelings by using evaluative words. And this is a huge thing for people when they finally get it. A feeling word is... I am sad, I am angry, I am resentful. It's about my experience. An evaluative word being masked as a feeling word is often, I feel abandoned. I feel um, excluded. And these are not actual feelings. These are our interpretations of what someone else thinks or feels or what their experience is. And by labeling it a feeling when it's not, it, it's masking 
the manipulative or coercive or power dynamics of telling somebody that we feel something that that is not a real feeling. And so they have no way to defend themselves. There's no way to correct that because we can't see it. Um, so the violence linked into feelings when we use evaluative words versus feeling words. Um, and the third step of needs, the violence leaks in when we talk about when we say, so a, a healthy statement of a need would be, I have a need for space. I have a need for independence. I have a need for connection. Those are real needs. What we often do is we say, I need you to do this thing. That's not an actual need. That's a strategy for meeting a need. And no one else is responsible for meeting our needs. We are. So when we say, when we say I need this thing, you know, this, I need you to do this, or I need this thing to happen. I need you to do that. What we're saying is, we're saying I need something. So, so we're trying to engage them with seeing our need, our humanness, but then we put a rule on them. We put an expectation on them, which is violent, but it's almost impossible to see unless you know how to look for it. So a need is not the strategy on how to get that need met. And then the last part of the model is the request. And often we are we have a hard time making requests in this culture because we don't want to hear no. So oftentimes what we'll say, like a healthy request would be, would you be willing to um, show up at 2 p.m. on Friday? Okay, so that's a request, full on. What we often say is, it would be great if you would show up at 2 p.m. It would be unfortunate if you didn't show up at 2 p.m. Uh, So-and-so would be really disappointed if you didn't show up to, at 2 p.m. So what we're doing is demanding instead of requesting, but we don't recognize that because we we don't want to hear no. And in a nonviolent communication, you have to go in being willing to accept the other person's reality, no matter what it is. So if you make that request of them, you have to go in knowing that you might hear no and be okay with that. So there are points on every point of the Offner model where violence leaks in. And if we're aware of how that happens, we can be a lot better at communicating clearly and with true empathy instead of veiled veiled violence that looks like empathy, if that makes sense. Wow. That was really, I, 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 okay. All right. This yowzes <laughs> all the things. This is all the things. Uh, Sorry, that was long winded, but no, no, yeah, no, it was, it was very powerful and impactful and, uh, I've taken notes. I'd like to go back to, uh, the, I feel part of this, of mm-hmm. the offner technique. Uh, and yeah. you broke it down into two things, uh, the difference between abandoned, saying I feel abandoned, and the difference between mm-hmm. saying I feel sad. What did you call the the first, the abandoned? What, what was the phrase for that? It's an evaluative term. So essentially we're evaluating what's happening for the other person when we're using an evaluative word. But by saying I feel and then using the evaluative word, that's the violent part because it's not an actual feeling. When we say I feel and I need within a nonviolent communication, we're inviting the other person to have empathy with us because we all have feelings and we all have needs. And so when we stick to the real feelings, then we draw that person in with empathy because they're like, oh, I felt that way before. 
when we say I need a specific thing that's an actual need, then we're drawing them in with empathy and they go, oh, I've, I've had that need before. So it opens them up to truly hearing you. But if we mask the, the evaluative term with a feeling term and we mask the strategy to getting in the need met with a need, then we're not allowing the empathy to happen. Okay. And then in your, um, when you said, and then you had a different word for I need space versus I need you to what you said, the, mm-hmm. the, I need you is that's a, a, you said you called that a strategy. Or was yeah. There another so phrase I- for that. There's a basic set of needs. There's actually this great tool out there called Grok Cards, and it's a deck of cards, one for needs and one for feelings, which is a really helpful tool. But there's also lists online. Um, and there's there's a list of standard human needs. And then there's a list of standard human emotions. And those things are connective things that we all experience. So the need, the true need is just a need. However, when we apply somebody doing something about that need, it's a strategy for getting the need met. Every single thing that anybody does or says is in service of their needs. It's a strategy for getting their needs met. All right. And then the last one for the request part, when you said, would you be willing to, is there another uh, nonviolent way to phrase that? But uh, like, if, like, would you be willing to, is there another way we can say that? Yeah, um, the, the point is willingness. So anything that is, is a truly based on the other person's willingness works. So it might be, would you be open to, would you consider, would you help me in this way? And it's really based on willingness. So whatever you're asking, as long as the core, the honest core of what you're asking is really open willingness and they have the absolute ability and freedom to say yes, no, or anywhere in between, then it's okay. Would you be willing is is helpful because it reminds people that it's about willingness, but any phrase that has that as its backbone is is totally appropriate. Uh, so uh, could you say, would you be inclined to? Mm-hmm. Uh, Absolutely. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. That, I really like that. Um, because that, that is one of the things that I, I definitely uh, struggle with is, uh, is, you know, how to make a request and, and expressing the needs. And I've had other uh, blueprints uh, similar to this, but I really like this one. This one um, really. Uh, and then it's oftener. Is this your technique or is this? No, uh, no, okay. no, no. Not nonviolent communication was developed by a man named Marshall Rosenberg. Um, and it was specifically, it was, came out right around the nonviolent, um, movement, which is why it's called nonviolent. Um, it was, it, it was starting to be developed right around MLK Jr. around the time that Gandhi was doing his nonviolent protests. So Marshall Rosenberg specifically used that term to help people identify with those movements. Um, I use it differently because I really think we need to call our attention to what violence is. But yeah, he he developed it years and years ago. He wrote a book called Nonviolent Communication, but he has several other tools. My version of nonviolent communication that I teach is based on his work, but also includes cognitive behavioral techniques that I learned through being a mental health consumer. And what are some of those cognitive behavioral techniques that you've learned? 
Um, so CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy is amazing because it essentially takes all these ways of reprogramming and makes them so easy. So there's acronyms um, such as HALT. So when we engage in a communication, if we're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, HALT. Do not go any further. Um, uh, CBT is also looking at our looking at the connection of the domino effect of our feeling, our thought, our spoken word, and our behavior, and like how how do those dominoes happen, and how can you stop the dominoes from hitting each other by understanding where that process begins. So the thought stopping that I've talked about before is a CBT skill, um, but there's I mean it's. It's a, it's a very deep world of a lot of really cool um, techniques, but I use a lot of those in my nonviolent communication work because I think it helps people. It's just so easy, you know, like act. Act is one I use a lot. Accept, accept the thing, change the thing, or turn away or pivot from the thing. And so if it's a relationship, whatever it is in your life that, that is feels challenging, you have those three decisions. And if you are not doing anything about it, you're accepting it, you know? So, so all of those acronyms and those easy tools make it a lot more engaging, I think, for people to work with nonviolent communication. Jarrah, this was such a great episode. I really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to share all the things. Is there anything, is there any stone left unturned? Is there, I mean, I know you have so many other tools and strategies and acronyms and things, but uh, in terms of, of uh, what you uh, wanted to share, is there anything uh, that we didn't we didn't put out there on the table? No, I don't think there is. I mean, I this is my life's work, so I I I have the assumption that this is going to be a lifelong thing for me, and I'm always learning more. But really, the key behind almost everything that I teach and everything I embody is intentionality. We are we have a huge lack of intentionality. We really, really like a structure to be able to follow. But I, it's my perception, it's my idea that you cannot see real change, you cannot see real alchemization in your life if you're not willing to be intentional about the choices that you make within your life. So intentionality is the number one key to authenticity and to having a healthy, effective life. I love that. Thank you so much, Jared. Plug all your things. Where can people find you? How can they work with you? Be be shameless. Absolutely. Plug it all. <laughs> shameless. Um, so I have my main avenue of communication right now is actually TikTok, which is where your um, your uh, VA found me. Um, and so I, I'm on there educating about poly. So that's at magic.of.authenticity um, on TikTok. I'm also on Facebook. Uh, you can just look up Ma- Magic of Authenticity. I'm on Facebook. I also have a website. So that's magicofauthenticity.com, all one word. Um, and you can book coaching sessions with me there. But the big thing that's happening right now is that I am putting the finishing touches on my What is Polyamory course, which is a I think it's about an hour of actual video, but there's a whole workbook that you kind of work through the course and fill out a workbook. And it's really for those people who want to learn more about polyamory, either because they want to try it or they want to support somebody in their lives. And uh, it's coming out May 1st is the launch date for that. And people can get on the email list by going to my website under the polyamory tab under services. Um, There's a pop-up that'll come up and they can get an email for when it first comes out because I'm offering 50% off to the first 50 people. 
So um, those are the ways to connect with me. I love it. And then I ask this of all the guests who, who, I, who I have on, because uh, I always mm-hmm. feel like there's one person who's listening who may be on the precipice of ending their life. Before mm-hmm. you kill yourself, what would you say to that person? You being here, the statistical probability of you being here is as if two million people sat in the same room with a trillion-sided die each and all rolled the same number at the exact same time. There is meaning for you being here. And it's built in to you just breathing, not needing to do anything to deserve it. Jared Johnston, thank you so much for being on this episode. Thank you. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Leo. Thank you. And remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help, for you going to the magic of authenticity, for you calling 1-800-SUICIDE, for you going to thrivewithleo.com, for you going to a counselor, talk, talk to a friend, talk to an enemy. I like... Every now and again, I call up an enemy and, 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 and share all my woes. You'd be surprised at how mm-hmm. much enemies are willing to listen to, to your pain. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but talk to someone. There's someone who, who you matter to someone, and, and you just have no idea until you reach out and, and try to connect and, and pick up the phone or yell out your window. There's online programs. And you go into the show notes. I have a list of resources, both locally and globally. So I know I have listeners in the Netherlands and uh, Brazil and, and overseas and everywhere. So there are numbers everywhere. There's, there's no reason uh, for you not to be able to talk to and connect with someone and get help. Uh, thank you all for tuning in. Thank you for rating it five stars on iTunes. And we will talk to you soon.